So again, good morning. Um, it's wonderful to see so many people here today um, with so much working against us with the weather. Um, how many of you had to walk at least part of the way up here and weren't able to drive? <laughs> yeah, so that's familiar for, for, for us before we got our new car. Um, I mean, it's very cold today. Um, but it's always nice to see everyone here and to be reminded that this is really just a room and it's so wonderful to see us all come together and, um, you know, there, there really must be something special about the present moment and about this practice if we're willing to drive all the way out here into the woods and trudge up the snow and take all of this time out of our day. So, so thank you all very much for making that um, a possibility. So this is the fourth week of our Ango period. Um, and Ango is basically a time for intensive practice. Um, it's based in the monsoon seasons of India, where in the Buddha's day, they were kind of nomads traveling around, and they would have to uh, take root for a little bit of time during the monsoon season. Um, and they would really deepen their meditation and deepen their practice, and if there's anything similar to a monsoon season in Pennsylvania um, that makes you <laughs> need to kind of settle, it's definitely this. Um, so today I'm talking about one of the five hindrances to practice, which is what we've been talking about during, the, during this ango. Um, today I'm talking about restlessness, which is something that I'm very familiar with in meditation, um, very familiar with in meditation, I can't say that enough. Um, and so I wanted to start by reading a, um, a little section out of the Dhammapada. And this is a um, collection of short verses that, um, so for 500 years after the Buddha's death, it was an oral tradition. Um, and so the kind of scriptures tend to be repetitive or lyrical or poetic to help, to help kind of... Um, to aid the monks in memorization and um, passing this on as an oral tradition. And so, and I particularly like these ones, they're very beautifully written. Um, one thing I will say though is that um, this is kind of more of a Theravadin text and we're, Zen is more Mahayana. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about it, but there's some really strong uh, opinions in this. and. So again, you know, when we're reading stuff like this, it's important that this isn't doctrine, this isn't dogma, it's just something to ponder, something to um, examine and, and to, to think about and see what that raises in us. Um, and so this is called the mind. The restless, agitated mind, hard to protect, hard to control, the sage makes straight as a fletcher the shaft of an arrow. Like a fish out of water thrown on dry, drowned, on dry ground, <laughs> this mind thrashes about trying to escape Mara's command. The mind, hard to control, flighty, alighting where it wishes, one does well to tame. The disciplined mind brings happiness. The mind, hard to see, subtle, alighting where it wishes, the sage protects. The watched mind brings happiness. Far-ranging, solitary, incorporeal, and hidden is the mind. Those who restrain it will be freed from Mara's bonds. 
For those who are unsteady of mind, who do not know true dharma, and whose serenity wavers, wisdom does not mature. For one who is awake, whose mind isn't overflowing, whose heart isn't afflicted, and who has abandoned both merit and demerit, fear does not exist. Knowing this body to be like a clay pot, establishing this mind like a fortress, one should battle Mara with the sword of insight, protecting what has been won, clinging to nothing. All too soon this body will lie on the ground, cast aside, deprived of consciousness like a useless scrap of wood. Whatever an enemy may do to an enemy, or haters one to another, far worse is the harm from one's own wrongly directed mind. Neither mother nor father nor any other relative can do one as much good as one, one's own well-directed mind. So, a lot of these are written very matter-of-factly. Um, and so sometimes I read this as a reminder of, you know, kind of some of the basics of, of, of practice that I might not have originally learned from this, but it's a good kind of reminder. And I think one of the things is this idea, um, like a fish out of water thrown on dry drown. I don't know why I did that again. <laughs> like a fish out of water thrown on dry ground, this mind thrashes about trying to escape Mara's command. Um, so here Mara is kind of one of the um, kind of traditional Buddhist deities. Um, and I don't in my own interpretation, I don't see these as deities, you know, more metaphorical. Um, before Buddha's enlightenment, there's talking of him battling Mara, these temptations, these arrows that were flying to him that he turned into, um, turned into roses. And so, to me, Mara kind of means just this, these things that hinder our practice, these, these difficulties that we encounter, these challenges, the things that really... Um, you know, the opposite of what we may think we're setting out to, to accomplish. So I think that in, in a lot of ways, um, it's, we're talking about trying to escape Mara's command. I think sitting here and trying to be in the present moment is trying to, you know, really escape those patterns and, um, and, and, and really live in the present moment, which is what I think brings us all here. Um, you know, there's some harsh words here, like restraining the mind. I don't think we're restraining the mind here. Um, I'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, but the reason I wanted to read this is the part about the fish out of water thrashing around, trying to escape Mars' command. And it's so matter-of-factly stated. Um, and there's kind of this sense of inevitability or, or normalness to that, <coughs> where... Of course, you would expect, you know, doing this, trying to escape these patterns, your mind is going to be thrashing around. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, it's just what happens, and it's, it's, it's unavoidable. And I think all of us, to some extent, have that experience when we're sitting on the cushion, at least for certain moments of feeling the need to move, or these thoughts that fly around. And so I think it's a really good thing to examine restlessness. So, I know in my experience of restlessness, of course, you know, body, mind, it's, we're all having one experience, um, but you can kind of categorize in terms of thinking about it as physical restlessness and mental restlessness. 
Um, so I'm particularly feeling a lot of physical restlessness today, getting ready for the talk, and um, I usually am already. We have a lot of inertia of moving and constantly doing things in our, in our life. And so I think that there's a sense of physical restlessness that can arrive when you sit down, and a sense of just feeling fidgety or not wanting to sit still or... Um, I think at its extreme, sometimes I feel like just running out of the zendo. <laughs> um, but you know, but there's something, there's something that keeps us here. There's also mental restlessness that I think a lot of us are also really familiar with. Um, and this is more, I know one of the things that people, when they're beginning to learn about meditation and reading articles, one of the words you run across a lot is monkey mind. Um, and so this, we have this idea of a monkey swinging through trees um, from a vine to a branch and, you know, it just it's, it's keeps moving. It's holding on to this vine and then it's reaching out for the next thing as it's moving around in the jungle the way supposedly monkeys do. I've never seen a monkey. But um, this is a good metaphor for, I think, what our minds do sometimes. We go from thought to thought to thought and there's, we're just moving right through it and... Um, so I think monkey mind is a really good, uh, a good term for that. Um, one of the things I was reading kind of split up this restlessness also into kind of another form of, of, of restlessness of the mind, which would be kind of anxiety or worry, um, which I know with me becomes very convincing. You know, you can have these... <clears throat> It, it, it feels really convincing. Like there, when I was sitting here, I would, I would start thinking about the talk because that w- was imminently coming toward me. And at the time, I'm like, no, I really should be planning this. And then it does take kind of a leap of faith to be like, no, I'm here to be sitting. I'm here to be in the present. Um, you know, and, and, we, and we go around in our daily lives and it's, very, it's always very convincing why we should. And of course, there are things that we do need to, um, that we do need to, pay attention to and um, actually give those thoughts the, the attention that they, desire, that they need and deserve, but um, I think that's where the mindfulness helps us kind of start to uh, figure out what we want to do with that. So we have these different types of restlessness. Then I was thinking, what do we do then when we're sitting here to deal with our physical restlessness, to deal with our mental restlessness. Um, And there's a book or a manuscript that we've been reading by, um, for our our priest training, by Koben Chino Roshi, who is the lineage founder of, uh, lineage holder of our particular branch of Soto Zen that we practice here. Um, So I wanted to read a quick part of this before I start talking more about restlessness. When we are practicing sitting, it looks like nothing is happening, but that is just an outlook, because there is no obvious movement or visible product, because you know lots is happening. You are recognizing, observing your mind phenomena, playing a video of your own life story, going into a huge warehouse where everything is in disorder. Things are thrown into it, like here are some pots, some books, and there are ghost-like people. Noticing what's in there is like taking a journey into yourself looking into your past and re-examining, reviewing all of these experiences. Hakuin Zenji said that Zazen is to cut the main root of Alaya Vijnana, the storehouse consciousness. You do not necessarily cut the root, but you open all doors and entrances of the storage room and let the sunlight in. It shines into the dark corners and puts things in order. 
Sitting is like that. It makes the wind go through and the light shine in. This is not just your own life, this life, but it involves the roots, the previous lives of your ancestors. So I think that's a good kind of summary of restlessness. You're letting that light shine in, that awareness shine in, and you see that there's a lot going on in your mind um, and a lot happening in your mind. And we want to shine this light and things kind of start to naturally fall into place. So I think that instead of thinking about this, one of the, thing, the themes that we've been returning to and talking about the hindrances is instead of seeing the hindrances as hindrances, to see them as things that we need to coexist with, things that we need to include in our practice. And it takes a lot of trust. Um, so I, I, I think it's better to think then of how our mindfulness can coexist with these restlessness um, and with these other four hindrances and how we can create space around these different experiences that we're having and really let that light shine in and let it be um, and, and, and trust that in time that will improve it or it might not. Or, um, but just to know that our awareness itself can really do wonders for the experience that we're having. I know a lot of times I notice with my restlessness, or really anything that I pain, um, doubt, really any, anything that seems to be hindering me at the time, is that you have this physical sensation or this mental sensation, and then around that you have this judgment, which is really a separate thing, um, and it, it, which is really where the suffering comes from, is this judgment. And then me, I usually have another layer of judgment where I'm trying to be a good meditator and I see myself judging this sensation and I have another layer of judgment then where I'm judging myself for judging the sensation. And, you know, trying, and, and that kind of picture that we return to of us trying to meditate by um, you know, having this... Uh, I remember Coben in one of the other things was talking about a little policeman in your head. You know, and, and so you want to be a good meditator, and it's, it's just relax, or uh, calm down, or stop judging yourself, you're terrible. <laughs> you know, and, it's really, and it's really funny when you look at it that way, but at the time, it's really convincing. Um, so then we can notice that, and there's a hundred opportunities to notice what we're, what we're doing in our mind. So I think it's really important then to just accept it, and to uh, just accept the moment as it is, restlessness and all or pain and all, or any of these, I think this goes for a, a lot of the different, really anything that you encounter, just to accept the moment as it is, and to find a kind of peace that is, is unconditional, and can exist alongside these other experiences that we're having. And I think that a big part of that is really believing that <coughs> what you're experiencing at that time is enough, and it's sufficient. And I talked about this with boredom um, and really just feeling that you can accept what's going on right now. And this is what's happening in the present moment. I can accept everything and this is enough. And not only is it enough, but to find a way to enjoy that moment, restlessness at all. Um, which might not feel like your standard <laughs> types of enjoyment, but I, I, I believe it's possible although it's definitely something that I'm constantly struggling with. And so I think the thing that's really important then, uh, and really the point that I want to make, is just about doing this with confidence. Confidence in the present moment, confidence in, in your own awareness, um, confidence 
all around, just based on the experiences that we have sitting and the fact that we do have these moments where we can release that judgment time and time again. And we constantly experience that, these thoughts arising, the suffering, and then we can release it. And it feels, it, it feels really good. So even though it might be our tendency to continually attach to these thoughts and to continually create all of these other layers and all of these stories and, and, and travel around, I think after we do that 100,000 times, <laughs> there's a confidence that arises that really from a kind of a place of a gut feeling, you can just let it go and accept what's going on and it might seem like there's not a piece there. And I know with me it certainly does as well because these thoughts are really, really convincing. But, but then time and time again, I'm surprised where we can always keep returning to this, to this place of equanimity and of, and of acceptance. And that's, we do that over time through practice. And so that's why it's really wonderful to get together like this and to support each other like this because it's a whole lot easier to do this together and put that space around the experience and really contact the present moment, which is, you know, it's when, when you're not naming these things, there's this experience of things being just this kind of wordless, profound experience, but also really ordinary. Um, it's almost... You know, not really necessary to talk about it because we can experience that right now. Um, we can experience that anytime, even if that object of that experience is our restlessness. So again, it's that uncondition- unconditional kind of peace that can really coexist with, with those thoughts. Um, and then sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't coexist and sometimes it feels like things are too much, or you're really attached to it, or I really continue on our thoughts. And that's totally normal, too. And I think that's where we return to in the Dhammapada talking about, you know, this fish out of water thrashing around as a natural response to being out of water. Um, Just reminding ourselves that it's a natural response to be restless and to have the monkey mind swinging around and to then just when we notice that, to return to the present moment. Um, one of the things that Mato says a lot is that when you return to that place in the present moment, that moment itself where you make that decision is a moment of enlightenment. And you can really see the whole picture of what's going on. And you can really make that, you can really switch it over where I can still be restless, I can still be desire or aversion or doubt or any of the other hindrances that we're talking about. Um, But it's a really wonderful thing to just have that realization, oh, I can just let go of this experience and return to the present moment and experience this for what it is, which isn't necessarily something I can change. Maybe it is. Um, And then five minutes later, get distracted again. But which will always happen, but we always have that opportunity to return to the present moment. Um, And that's why I'm really grateful for all of you to be able to come here and to share this practice together, because I think that we all see something about the present moment that really kind of motivates us to come here and do this without necessarily having to 
think of it in terms of restraining the mind or um, you know which is which is another form of, of of that grasping really hoping to control the mind so I wanted to read one more of of these which this one is called the Buddha The Buddha's victory cannot be undone. No one in the world can approach it. By what path would you guide him, who has no path, whose field is endless? The Buddha has no ensnaring, embroiling craving to lead him. By what path would you guide him, who has no path, whose field is endless? Even the gods envy the awakened ones, the mindful ones, the wise ones, who are intent on meditation and delight in the peace of renunciation. It is difficult to be born a human, Difficult is the life of mortals. It is difficult to hear the true Dharma. Difficult is the arising of Buddhas. Doing no evil, engaging in what's skillful, and purifying one's mind, this is the teaching of the Buddhas. Patient endurance is the supreme austerity. The Buddhas say that nirvana is supreme. One who injures others is no renunciant. One who harms another is no contemplative. Not disparaging others, not causing injury, practicing restraint by the monastic rules, knowing moderation in food, dwelling in solitude, and pursuing the higher states of mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. Not even with a shower of gold coins would we find satisfaction in sensual craving. Knowing that sensual cravings are suffering, that they bring little delight, the sage does not rejoice even in divine pleasures. One who delights in the ending of craving is a disciple of the fully awakened one. People threatened by fear go to many refuges, go to mountains, forests, parks, trees, and shrines. None of these is a secure refuge. None is a supreme refuge. Not by going to such a refuge is one released from all suffering. But when someone going for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha sees with right insight the Four Noble Truths, suffering, the arising of suffering, the overcoming of suffering, and the Eightfold Path leading to the end of suffering, then this is the secure refuge. This is the supreme refuge. By going to such a refuge, one is released (coughs) from all suffering. It's hard to find a noble person. Such a person is not born everywhere. When such a wise one is born, the family flourishes in happiness. Happy is the arising of Buddhas. Happy is the teaching of the true Dharma. Happy is the harmony of the Sangha. Happy is the ardent practice of those in harmony. The merit of worshipping those worthy of worship, be they Buddhas or disciples, who have transcended their obsessive thinking, passes beyond sorrow and grief. Gone to peace, and who have nothing to fear, can never be calculated by any estimation. So, of course, that's a... This is an ideal. You know, this is something... um, I think it's important to remember that the, 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 the Buddhas are us, and so we're bowing to us here. Um, and so this is the ideal, this is what we come to practice, but I think that in addition to this, it's really important to remember that that restlessness, that all the other aversions and desires and doubts, these are equally part of us, and I, th- I think, at least, included in, in what's being talked about here. So... Thank you all for coming to make that a reality here today.